This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to the show. Thanks again for hanging out with us. We've got a lot coming up today. Oh, we sure do. And honestly, I can't believe I'm, I'm honestly really excited that the weekend's nearby. Um, but this week... <laughs> Has just kind of flown by. Well, it is. You know, when after you hit Halloween, time flies, and then it's the end of the year, basically. I know, but I really don't want to think about the holidays because it's just, it kind of makes me sad a little bit because it's not like I'm mm-hmm. going home or seeing my mom. But yeah, I'm telling you, like I said yesterday, the art, the iPhone and Google Duo has saved my life. Oh, I love that. You, but you know, as uh, my friend Cuomo says, can I play this for you? Oh, God, here we go. You know what love is on Thanksgiving? I love you so much, and I'm so thankful for you that I'm not going to see you. (laughs) I hate you so much. That's, I feel like I'm gonna send that to everyone as my message for Thanksgiving. I'm so thankful that I don't get to see you. (laughs) That was Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, everyone in a clip that's now going viral. But let's uh, get into what's trending this hour. Before we do, coming up on the show, how light therapy can help you with seasonal depression. Plus, do curfews actually work to decrease the spread of COVID-19? We're getting into that with the Washington Post in a bit this hour. But here are some headlines right now. Rudy Giuliani. Did it again. Back at it again. <laughs> had, had a press conference with hair dye and sweat trickling down his face. I mean, at this point, you can't write this. I mean, it's it feels fake, but it's real. I can't wait to can't see what uh, SNL does. Oh, totally. It's going to be epic. He continued to take a bullet for Trump, saying they have the evidence to prove that Trump won the election. In the states that we have indicated in red, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, and Arizona. We more than double the number of votes needed to overturn the election in terms of provable illegal ballots. All you gotta do to find out if I'm misleading you at all is to look at the lawsuits. Look what's alleged, look at the affidavits. Maybe we can supply more affidavits. In order to do it, I have to get permission from the people. I love how he's like, we're saying this and have the evidence, but can't show you now. I mean, how long will this show go on when literally most of the lawsuits he is talking about have gotten pulled because of no substantial evidence? Yeah, it's it's really sad. And it's a really it's a 
huge attack on democracy as we know it, but we're going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later. Speaking of which, the Trump campaign has withdrawn its federal lawsuit in Michigan. In a statement from Giuliani, the campaign said it was pulling the lawsuit. He claimed that they had achieved, quote, the relief we sought to stop the election in Wayne County from being prematurely certified before residents can be assured that every legal vote has been counted and every illegal vote has not been counted. However, local election officials voted to certify the results Tuesday night. And let's move on to Georgia. Election officials expect to release a report later today on a hand tally of the presidential race. And they have repeatedly said they expect it to affirm Democrat Joe Biden's narrow lead over Republican President Trump. The hand tally of about 5 million votes stemmed from an audit required by a new state law and was not in response to any suspected problems with the state's results or an official recount request. The state has until tomorrow to certify results that have been certified and submitted by the counties. And finally, where are the worst coronavirus outbreaks in the U.S. now, you might ask? Well, according to an analysis from the University of Oxford data, they show states that didn't keep up forceful virus containment efforts or implement basic measures in the first places are seeing the worst surges now. And they show that North Dakota and South Dakota had few recent measures and now the worst outbreaks. And Hawaii had the strictest measures and is seeing few cases. Well, look at that. I mean, Hawaii was very strict, honey. They was like not playing with folks. Yeah, they said basically two weeks if you want to come into our Mm -hmm. state, you messy city people. Okay, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, so after a nasty falling out between Janet Hubert and the cast of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when she was replaced before the show's fourth season 27 years ago, the original Banks family has finally put its feud behind them. I, last night, you all, watched The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion on HBO Max, and let me tell you, the tears were flowing um, in the first five minutes, and this moment that we're about to dive in on about this feud, um, because, you know, she, too, would slam Will Smith in every interview she could, um, but they Mm. extended an olive branch for the new 30-year reunion special, which dropped last night on HBO Max. Here is a little bit of the trailer. I've always been able to recognize chemistry. Will and Alfonso, from the very beginning, were just playmates. This is my brother Carlton. He knows we can't afford any bigger clothes, so he just doesn't grow. So now, looking back, um, Will Smith, they had a very candid conversation, you know? They were basically realizing, like, she talked about how a lot of people on set in her final season didn't even realize a lot of the stuff she was going through. She was pregnant. She was going through some domestic violence issues, and she wasn't as happy. And even Will Smith said, looking back to his own experience with children, marriage, and divorce, that he could now see the level of Mm -hmm. pain and the level of struggle that it was for her just to show up every day. And she had to be real with him. uh, She said this, you took all of that away from me with your words. Words can kill. I lost everything, reputation, everything, everything. I understand you were able to move forward, but you don't know those words. Calling a black woman difficult in Hollywood is a kiss of death. It's hard enough when you are a dark skinned Mm. black woman in this business. And that's what happened. Yeah, can you explain that? Because I I didn't know this story. Yes, so as we wrap up quickly, he called her difficult. They were going at it. You know, he was the star of the 
show. And uh, mm-hmm. they were having some backstage issues and he started to go in the press and say that it was difficult to work with her. And saying that about a black woman, that's basically blacklisting her. And she was so talented. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it just proved that she deserves so much. And so I recommend everyone, everyone go watch that if you have HBO Max, because honey, it is so worth it. And that is your tea report and more coming up next hour. All right. Well, coming up on the show, how Trump's never ending attempt to take the election from Biden is trickling down to local races, too. More on that with The Washington Post in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Attempts to force this election to a Donald Trump win has many calling it a coup. And while it might not work this time around, Washington Post editorial reporter Stephen Stromberg says it will pave the way for the next failed candidate. He joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what are we currently seeing that suggests that this is a coup? So the most dramatic evidence right now is out of Michigan. And you saw some of that today. All this controversy over whether these canvassers were going to certify the vote. Basically, election administrators have maybe some a little bit of um, a little bit of leeway here and there to decide whether or not the vote was legitimate. But in fact, most of the time, this sort of stuff is ministerial. It's not really up to much controversy. It's just a pro forma sort of thing. But the president is pushing really hard to delay the process in any way he can, to use any of these weird technicalities to try to overturn the vote, not just disqualify ballots, but maybe to throw it to the state legislature, which is run by Republicans, and maybe the Republicans in the legislature will then send a slate of electors to the Electoral College that are for Trump rather than for Biden, even though he, you know, Trump lost the state by 150,000 votes. So it's a really convoluted mess uh, that has to do with the sort of the weird way that we choose presidents in this country. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the reason why it's not going to work this time is that it's not a really close election. I mean, we're not talking about 500 votes in Florida like we had in 2000. We're talking 150,000 votes in Michigan, plus 20,000 votes in Wisconsin, plus 11,000 votes in Arizona, plus 85,000 votes in Pennsylvania. (laughs) It needs to... He needs to get all flip like three of these states to make a difference. And he's not going to. That's why it's really just a dangerous precedent rather than something he's likely to pull off right now. Well, and it feels like that dangerous precedent is already happening before our eyes because other candidates, Republican candidates, are kind of going with his narrative by saying, mm-hmm. well, how about I hold up our election? And that's stopping what we're seeing. It's kind of trickling down like a domino effect. Is that something that we're going to continue to see, not just at the presidency, but other places where, you know, people can get elected? Totally, totally. That's exactly the that's exactly the threat. So uh, you're already seeing in um, some House races, for example, some of these uh, uh, Republican candidates who lost and in some cases lost by like huge Huge. margins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Crying fraud and saying, oh, you know, we you know, there's no way we could have lost by this much, you know, in an extremely blue county. Imagine that. Uh, So so it, it is already having an effect. It used to be that every now and then you'd have some kind of weird holdout you know, somewhere every election or so, maybe one or two people would 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 be kind of the outlier and scream that he he or she or they couldn't possibly have lost. And of course, that person had lost and just couldn't accept it. The problem is now we're normalizing this behavior. Now it's it's becoming 
you know, 70% or something like that of Trump voters are saying that Biden won because of fraud. And it's all because it's coming from the top this time. Yeah, definitely. Again, we're talking to editorial writer from The Washington Post, Steven Stromberg. So you mentioned that if enough states are prevented from certifying their votes by legal deadlines, the election could be thrown into Congress. What happens then? So this is very convoluted. Um, yeah. Uh, but 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 the there are a few different ways that that could happen. One way is if they delay the certification in enough states such that not enough delegates are there uh, for one candidate or the other for either candidate to get a majority, then that could be there. There could be some kind of it would have to be a very specific pathway to get uh, to something like a tie. Uh, in the Electoral College where the House of Representatives would then decide it. So that's one option. But that seems very, very, very extremely unlikely. Another option is that you um, get delay certification long enough and you you throw up enough dust into the air that um, the state legislatures in some of these states that went for Biden but have Republican state legislatures, maybe they could step in and try to appoint electors. But then some of these governors in some of these states are Democrats and they could say, no, 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 no. I'm certifying a different slate of electors. And so you have two different slates of electors that Congress would have to sort out which one they would accept. And then it's a, a there, there's this act from 1887 that comes into play. And Ooh, it's a whole it's, history lesson. It's wild. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. It's not going to happen because they're just, they're, they're, it would have to, too many states would have to fall in line right. on the Trump side of things for it to happen this time. So if it's not going to happen, what is Trump's end game here? Like, and also Republicans, like it feels like a lot of Republicans are willing to die on this hill for him. And it just feels like what's everyone's end game at this point? That's such a good question. The best I can tell is what our um, what my uh, my colleague in our newsroom, uh, Robert Costa, has reported, which is the real underlying strategy in so much as there is one at all is to uh, make Biden sort of seem illegitimate, which is working. I mean, again, you look at these, these polling numbers suggesting that people are particularly Trump voters are, are, are now coming around to the idea that he won via fraud when there's no real evidence of that. So, so to make Biden seem illegitimate so that Trump will have an easier time running in 2024. That, if I would have to guess, that would be the most logical explanation. But then again, you don't have to have a logical explanation with this president. So that is true. Well, thank you so much for being here and for writing this piece. Sure. Thanks for having me. That was editorial writer Steven Stromberg from The Washington Post. Now, coming up, can curfews actually help fight COVID-19? We discuss that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Curfews are popping up across the country as COVID-19 numbers rise, but do they actually make sense? Well, Dr. Thielen, an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School, joins us right now. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So do these curfews actually make a difference? Yeah, so I think that's a really important question to be asking ourselves as we're thinking about these policy decisions. Um, I can tell you a little bit of back, uh, you know, background of where that sort of came came about, at least from our data here in, in Minnesota. Um, so we, you know, our health, we have are very fortunate to have a very strong health department, and they collect a lot of data about where our cases of COVID uh, are coming from. Um, and there are actually are some some studies that have shown that the risk of, of, of acquiring COVID does seem to is, is higher in people that were at bars and restaurants after, uh, you know, in the later evening hours after 9 or 10 p.m. But the limitation of those studies is that it imply that those are, are the cause of people's infections. So you might imagine that people who are going to bars and restaurants after 10 p.m. maybe also are not wearing their masks 
in bars and restaurants during the day or getting together with other people um, at other times or doing other risky behaviors. So we don't actually know, um, we don't have experience of knowing if posing the curfews actually does drop the rate of cases. That's sort of a, yeah. uh, an extrapolation based on that we know that, that um, being at bars and restaurants later in the evening does seem to be a risk factor. Yeah, but I mean, we've seen, obviously, several European countries try the curfews and, and they, they kind of started to see that that wasn't even working. And so it prompted them to later issue some stay at home orders, which feels like everyone is back to normal outside of the United States. So should we be doing that? Like, which one would you prefer? You know, is it a stay at home or order or should we be trying to do this curfew and making that work? It's all a matter of the timing. And I, I agree. I agree with you. And I think it, here in Minnesota, just last night, we went, we went uh, the governor made a, a statement that we're going you know, to shut down bars and restaurants um, and activities like that more generally. I think it sort of depends on what, how uh, adherent people are being to the recommendations to wear masks and maintain distance and move events outdoors, um, you know, in addition to the, the curfews. So I think a curfew in and of by itself is probably not going to be sufficient to get these cases under control, given the just explosive number of cases that we're seeing across the country. Definitely. Well, again, we're talking to Dr. Thielen, an assistant professor at University of Minnesota Medical School. As an infectious diseases expert, then what would you suggest? Like, how are we handling this right now? Yeah, so I think it's sort of two parts. There's there's the part that everybody can do for themselves, which I think is really, really important now. You know, we can make these rules, we can close down the businesses, but still a lot of the, you know, a lot of the choices and a lot of the things that are going to affect people, uh, whether people get infected or not, really come down to the things you're doing in your own home. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's really hard. You know, I'm a pediatrician. I want to... I want families to be together. I want grandparents to see their grandkids. And, you know, I, I want people to be able to gather and, and such. But like for the holidays coming up, it's just really, really hard. And we're really asking people to limit those gatherings, to just people within their immediate households to really stop this transmission. You know, washing hands, wearing masks, wearing masks all the time when you're with someone outside your household and really limiting those gatherings and, and moving them outdoors if at all possible. I think those those things are the, the, the big things we want people to really take home and, and understand to help get this under control. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously a lot of the, um, depending on what side you fall, a lot of the talking points is like the economy. If we close these businesses, mm-hmm. then it's going to impact us. But is that a short-term impact or a long-term impact? And is it really worth our lives? Like, is that a good enough excuse for us to just be kind of playing with the idea of doing a, a shutdown completely and a curfew? Yeah. You know, I'd really like to see it be a both and and not an either or, Ooh. you know, mm-hmm. there's lots, I, I really, you know, I live in Minneapolis. We've got a lot of really fun local restaurants and, you know, drinking establishments, and and I really want them to to survive. And I, I appreciate that this is really really hard for our local our local businesses and you know people living paycheck to paycheck. I don't want to minimize that at all. It's really really hard for people, and so I think we really need to be asking our government to step up. Uh, particularly at the federal level and and sort of provide the financial resources to get people through, you know, ending evictions, things like that. You know, we need people to be sheltered uh, during this coming winter. And so I think really asking our our governments to provide the supports for those for those things to keep everybody safe and help get people through this. That's for sure. You know where we're at with that, though. I mean, not anywhere right now, unfortunately, and we'll see where it lands. Where are you seeing this working anywhere else in the world? 
because I feel like there were certain spots where we thought it was working, they were doing it right, but maybe it ended up not working. But are there certain places that have figured it out? You know, one of one of our local folks here, uh, Michael Osterholm, who's advising the, uh, the president-elect on, on the um, policy around COVID, has really advocated for, you know, providing income to people, to help, paying people basically to stay home. And I was contacted by somebody in Victoria, uh, Australia, and they said, you know what, that's what we did in, in Australia is we paid people to stay home. We really got things under control. And now we don't really have any much in the way of cases. So I think doing some really, um, I think it, it, it takes a lot of sustained effort to get the to get the numbers down, get things controlled to the point where we can our public health systems can take over and trace. You know, when we do have cases cropping up, that they can do contact tracing yeah. and and shut it down when it happens again. Um, and that just it really needs to make it in public health. We say the right thing needs to be the easy thing. And so I think it needs to be, we need to make it as easy as possible for people to stay home. And that means, you know, they can, they have a way to pay their bills. They have a way to feed their families um, without putting, putting themselves or other people at risk. I mean, for sure. Well, thank you so much for being here for this. Yeah. Well, we're, you know, there's, this is a, a super team effort and it's uh, thankful to all the, the nurses and the other yeah. healthcare professionals who are out there, you know, taking care of patients and helping us get through this. Yep, that was Dr. Thielen, an assistant professor at University of Minnesota Medical School. Next up, should Hollywood empathize with Trump supporters? Well, comedian Whitney Cummings seems to think so. We get into that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Comedian Whitney Cummings wants the left to empathize with Trump supporters. Now, before we get into this, let's talk about the interview and I'll actually say what she said but in that interview with the Daily Beast published yesterday she spoke about her time as an executive producer on the Roseanne reboot and was asked what it was like quote getting into the mind of a Trump supporter I didn't even know she did the Roseanne reboot actually but oh, interesting yeah. tidbit I did yeah. I did I knew that well, this is what she had to say. I'm fascinated by playing devil's advocate and want to understand the people I disagree with. I don't want to dismiss and malign. And she says how her dad used to argue with her at the table to teach her kind of how to make her own case and argue. And she grew up in Washington, D.C. And she says she was exposed to people with different beliefs and opinions when she was young. And, quote, even though I don't agree with somebody, I don't think they're dumb. Uh, so do you agree with that approach to things, which definitely impacts how we look at our country and the world today. Um, I don't agree with her. I, you know, I'm so annoyed with a lot of these celebrities speaking out, talking about we need to be giving empathy to the other side or listening to what they have to say. You know, she's not the target of of the hate. So, of course, she kind of has the energy uh, to play devil's advocate. She has that to be able to kind of listen to them because guess what? Her lives or her rights are not being just affected. She doesn't have to walk around with a target on her back. So this idea of saying, well, we need to, you know, listen to people. We need to listen to these folks. I would have agreed with her maybe about, you know, four to six years ago, to be quite honest. I would have been like, let's listen to these folks. But after the latest updates of like this election and seeing that the amount of white women uh, that voted for Trump increased, the amount of white uh, men also increased, the amount of white youth increased um, that voted for this person, I am a little bit um, not able to play that devil's advocate role, especially when I know people are playing one thing in my face, being like, oh, we're doing this performative activism thing but then they're going into the privacy of those you know voting booths are that mail-in ballot and they're voting for trump because guess what their lives are not being affected 
Yeah, they're voting on other issues, which, yeah, is because of the privilege they have and they're not being impacted by the things that he's rolling back in terms of rights for others. Uh, that said, so here's the thing. I, I don't want you to put yourself on the line to talk to these people, Ryan, because you don't need to. You shouldn't. Right. I do actually think people like Whitney Cummings or people like me should. Right. I give credit to the folks like the amazing John Lewis, who is able to bridge those gaps. But that's a rarity, right? That takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage and uh, work to get there as an activist. You know, we talked to Dr. David Camp, the, the white whisperer, you know, who does that himself, but not everyone can be like these individuals, which is why I do think it's up to those of privilege who have the strength to do this and the knowledge and the ability to be able to have these conversations or else we're not going to get anywhere. We I, will continue I'm, to be divided. I'm sorry. I got to push back on that year because back in 2018, Whitney Cummings was defending a racist joke from that Roseanne reboot because she, she goes with the same narrative to not represent these people scares her. Sometimes racism and things should not be listened to. Sometimes that should not be, Oh my God, I can pull them over to the up uh, to the other side to see that they're on the wrong side of history that is not okay and oftentimes those people not saying you because i think you have the range to have the conversation but a lot of these other white celebrities or white people who are trying to do it do not have the range to have the conversation that needs to be had and so because mm. they're not doing the right research they're not surrounding themselves with the right people and whitney cummings is for damn sure not the person that i want to be playing devil's advocate when my life is on the line yeah although she does say in this that the com comedians are the truth tellers Gross. of this whole thing. Not true. So, all right. Well, coming up on the show, uh, one GOP senator is being accused of violating ethics rules. That's next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how debt collectors will soon be allowed to reach you by text or on Facebook and social media. Imagine that. I mean, that could get annoying. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just keep thinking about just the embarrassing moments of like if you're getting added on Twitter or something and then everybody can search it or see it. It's just weird. I don't like that. It's exposing you. Oh, yeah. It, it, that is uh, definitely outing you in many ways. Like, it's not an attractive thing. And that's how, you know, you say people you're dating want to see your credits report. You'll be able to see it on Ooh. social media. The future is here. Actually, maybe I might like that. Now. I need to see if somebody I'm trying to go with <laughs> is not paying their bills. Something to look at, that's for sure. Okay, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Georgia GOP Senator Kelly Loeffler drew backlash yesterday for soliciting campaign funds while speaking in the halls of Congress, which is, by the way, a potential violation of Senate ethics rules. Not like they care, though. Loeffler is facing off against Democrat Raphael Warnock in a runoff election in January in Georgia, all the while calling out liberals on Fox News for Warnock's out-of-state contributions. We know that hundreds of millions of dark liberal money is pouring into our state. That's why it's so important that everyone across the country get involved. They can visit Kelly for Senate.com to chip in five or ten bucks and get involved, volunteer. But what we have to make sure Georgians do is vote at the polls on January 5th or before because we, it is our state, this is our election, and we're not going to let them buy it. Not California, not New York. Chuck Schumer's not going to take Georgia. It's not available to New York or California. It's for Georgia. We're a red state, and we're going to keep it red. Senator, I've got to And by the way, the Senate's rules and standards of conduct for campaign activity prohibit Senate members and staff from receiving or soliciting campaign contributions in any federal building. And yet, she's calling him out for getting out-of-state 
contributions, which is, by the way, legal. Uh, Now the Democratic Party of Georgia announced today that it's filing a complaint against her with the Senate Ethics Committee and will request that the Justice Department investigate the matter as well. Now, as Republicans continue to discuss a fraudulent election, a CNN analysis of a viral claim suggesting that there are thousands of cases of ballots being cast in the name of the deceased, quote, did not find a single instance of that happening. Yep, claims have also circulated suggesting that dead people cast ballots in Pennsylvania. However, election experts say that while this occasionally happens, it is exceedingly rare. And that's from factcheck.org. There is no evidence that thousands of dead people also voted in Wayne County, Michigan and Georgia. Now, President Trump's daughter-in-law, listen to this, Lara Trump, could become the next Trump on a ballot as she is reportedly considering a 2022 Senate run in her home state of North Carolina. Oh, God. That's according to New York Times report. Yeah. Today, three allies of Lara Trump told The Times that she has been telling associates she would run in two years to replace Senator Richard Burr, who's a Republican and plans to retire at the end of his term. Now, the upcoming Senate race is likely to be tight, though, for North Carolina after this year's election, President Trump held onto the state by 1.3 percentage points, and that's a very sm- much of smaller margin than in 2016, and that hints at a possible turn to purple in the future. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Yes, yes. You know, we call that the T report around here. But uh, you know, President Obama has been doing his rounds. He's been doing press, and I'm. I got to tell you this: if you haven't seen his interview with the Oprah Winfrey girl, please check it out here is a moment from that interview first of all obviously joe uh is somebody who stood by me on every major decision i had for eight years he's become a brother a a genuinely good friend kamala is one of my earliest supporters when i first launched my presidency so I, i i'm personally invested in them uh and they have the character and experience i think to do an outstanding job. So the one thing that they didn't talk about, however, is that basically President Barack Obama admitted in his new memoir, A Promised Land is what it's called, he admitted that at one point in his younger years, he used anti-LGBTQ slurs when he was a teenager. Um, He wrote how ashamed he was of using slurs like the F word and just not understanding that, you know, LGBTQ folks, period. Um, He also revealed that his own great aunt was a lesbian and would try to hide her relationship from family members. A Mm. Promised Land is the first time that Obama has publicly spoken about his aunt's sexuality. And the memoir, Obama also expands on the anti-gay language he used during his childhood. He said, like many teenage boys in those years, my friends and I sometimes threw words around like the F word or gay at each other as casual put-downs. Callow attempts to fortify our masculinity and hide our insecurity, he writes. Uh, He also wrote, once I got to college and became friends with fellow students and professors who were openly gay, though, I realized the overt discrimination and hate that they were subject to, as well as a loneliness and self-doubt that the dominant culture imposed on them. I felt ashamed of my past behavior and learned to do better. Now, I know on Twitter, I saw this story and it was People were kind of dragging him for it. But in all honesty, I think 
he has been a person that has shown, especially throughout his yeah. policy, that he has actually understood, you know, the LGBTQ experience and not discriminating against them and actually leading with an example of what we should be doing when it comes to um, hearing and listening to our community. Yeah, that's the thing. And even Biden was called out moving into this election because he at one point didn't support gay marriage. And that's a huge issue. But Obama didn't like either. And that, yeah, but, and that's the thing is like, unfortunately, they weren't in a place where the, that was acceptable in those times. Not that that's right, but I feel like they've done the work and they've proven that they're obviously on the other side now. So at what yeah. point do you acknowledge that and say, oh, you you were in a time, you were a part of a generation where this wasn't accepted. So unfortunately, like you didn't have that awareness, but y- you are obviously aware now. We see it in your actions where you're at. Like, is that enough? Yeah, and I love what he said here. He said, how could I believe otherwise when some of the same arguments for their exclusion had so often been used to exclude those who looked like me? And mm. I, I, I thought that was really powerful. And it just gives me another reason to buy this 700 like yes. page book and just watch it. I've watched that full hour interview with uh, Oprah. It's on Apple TV. Please check it out. And honey, I got more coming up in the Tea Report. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. Debt collectors could soon be using text and social media to hit you up and get their money. How do you feel about that, Ryan? I mean, honestly, do I need any more stress in my life right now? No. Right? I mean, this sounds like a nightmare. And here to share more is Irina Ivanova, data reporter for CBS Money Watch. So, Irina, let's talk about how this would even work. So that is a great question. And from talking with with experts who study this, it's pretty clear how this would work for texts and for emails. They're not sure what the social media part of it is. But, you know, the backstory is lots of other people can already text you, right? Like we get text reminders to see the doctor. We get text, you know, I'm getting text reminders from this like spa I went to. They're like, rate us, you know. It's very common. And debt collectors have not been able to do that because the law that regulates what they do uh, was made in the 70s, basically, when we didn't have this technology. Mm-hmm. It's important to say this is this is not official yet. It's going to, yeah. it, you know, the law was finalized. It's going to be effective late next year. But basically what's going to happen is they will be able to send you emails, text messages, and messages via social media with some restrictions. The good news for consumers is that uh, each message is supposed to come with a clear opt-out. So, you know, if you don't want to hear about this, here's how you can, you know, opt out of this. And, and, you know, and and if it doesn't come without instructions that, you know, that debt collector is breaking the law and you should be able to enforce your rights. Yeah. And I mean, this year was all about getting up. I mean, texts were blowing up our phone from political campaigns, but Mm -hmm. now it's happening with debt collectors. Why is it feel like there's no regulation when it comes to this? It feels like, especially when we're in the middle of a pandemic, the last thing Americans want to know about is like how much money that they're owing these debt collectors. It just feels so like tone deaf. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what a lot of consumer advocates are really mad about this, you know, and they're making exactly this point. Like, this is the worst time to be making things easier for debt collectors. The industry says that the communication is not the problem. They will say that, you know, if you have a bill, if you can't pay it, like, you should know about it. And they're not completely wrong, you know. Uh, it, it turns out that a lot of people that do go into collection, and it is a lot, I should say. If you're an American with a credit report, not everyone has a credit report, but about one-third of U.S. adults with credit reports have a debt in collections. 
Uh, it's mm. it's a really it's a really high portion, and a lot of these people actually don't know about it for a number of reasons. You know, it's possible that nobody tried to tell them. Um, it's possible that you know it got mailed to the wrong place, or for any number of reasons. So the the industry will make a case that if you owe money, you should know about it, and they'll work it out with you. Yeah. Again, again, we're talking to Irina Ivanova, data reporter for CBS Money Watch. So how do you circumvent fraud here? How do you know what's legit and what's not? Because I'm assuming that would be a huge issue. Something else that, you know, consumer advocates bring up. We already know that text scams are a big problem. And this is, you know, they're worried this is just going to make it more complicated. You know, the best practices uh, that I've heard is same same guidance applies as for any text you would normally get. You know, don't randomly click on something just because it looks like it might be legit. You should be able to, you know, contact the the person who is the alleged debt collector. You know, you should be able to get information from them that makes sense to you. You know, is this dollar amount something that seems reasonable? Is the name of the account, you know, a person you actually had an account with? Something else is uh, in about half of U.S. states, debt collectors actually have to be licensed. There is some regulation, so you can call your your state, you know, consumer services department. Um, and check with them. You know, is this person allowed to be doing this? Is this a real thing? And then, you know, when in doubt, just don't click and and opt out. You know, that is that is the bottom line. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, 2020 has taught me to get rid of toxic relationships, so I'll most definitely be opting out. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. You know, president of Action Collection Agencies in Boston, uh, he actually called this ruling a win-win. What What's the win-win here? Is there any? That's a great question. It's a it's it's a win win because you can opt out is the is the bottom mm, line from okay. consumer advocates. You know, it's not there are no they would obviously prefer that you opt in. You know, when I get text messages from my doctor, you know, it's because they said, "Hey, is it cool if we text you?" Um, you know, and and I talked with him and he said, you know, this is a problem that they have that people a lot of people don't want to be called on the phone, whether they'll be happier getting texts. You know, it's not clear. Um, and we should point out that it's it's already okay for them to text you if you say they can text you. You know, if if somebody's calling you and you say, "Don't call, text me instead," like that's that's cool. There doesn't need to be a separate law for that. You know, this is this is really about the duck collection industry uh, trying to you know get with the times and saying all these other people can can text you. You know, we should have the same rights as other as marketers as other you know industries. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us uh, for this topic. Thank you so much, Charlie. Yeah. Again, that was Irina Ivanova, data reporter for CBS Money Watch. Now coming up on the show, a new survey demonstrates how unpopular work parties are in 2020. That's coming up next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Employers, listen up. We're about to tell you what your employees want for the holidays and for all those working. Now you have uh, the survey to give your bosses to say this is true. It's not just your opinion, okay? Screw that. I don't even need a survey to tell my boss what I want. Are you kidding me? Right. (laughs) Well, one recent poll of human resources reps nationwide uh, said that only 23% of the company was going forward with an office holiday party and three out of four parties will be virtual. 
Okay, cute. But a new HuffPost YouGov survey offers a bit more of a nuanced look at what employees actually want from their employers for the holidays okay. if given a choice. Okay. So they basically got thousands of people to vote and pick these options across the country. And the response was nearly six in 10 answered that the most welcome gift would be a cash bonus. That Duh. part, I mean, ding, 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 ding. That's the first thing that came to my mind. To be quite honest, Shira, no one really likes holiday parties. Like, it is nice with the, the alcohol, the open bar, all that goodness. But really, people are just looking at all the amounts of money that your mm -hmm. company spent on this holiday party when it could be in your pocket. That's really the thing, right? That's real talk, yeah. They were also asked how enthusiastic they would be about receiving gift options. So three quarters said they would be very enthusiastic about a cash bonus. That's still like cash. 52% wanted to get extra paid time off. 37% wanted a gift card to a store or res a restaurant. And 22% felt similar about the prospect of a physical present, like a gadget or clothing, which you know what that means. They'd give you like a mug with the company's <laughs> logo or like a sweatshirt. Who wants that? And also, if you want a gift card that bad, why don't you just ask your third cousin in your family to put one in a card and they can just ship it to you because we're not obviously going to see our family this year. But like who, at, like that's awful. Unless it's a cash gift card that has like, it's preloaded with $200 or something on there. Yes, ma'am. Go yeah, ahead and do let's that. Let's be real. Let's be real. The best is uh, Amex, you know, or one of those like, mm -hmm. yeah, cash cards. Yes, that's it's the like only you type you of, want with it. The only type of gift card. I, I will take a, a gift card to, to the Cheesecake Factory because I love, oh my God, mm, I love me some red velvet cheesecake. So I would love that around the holidays. Yeah, I, it, it would be good. But I would say the two things that I feel like everyone, no matter what likes, is that cash card and a Starbucks card. I feel like yeah. no, you can't go wrong, wrong with the Starbucks card, right? And you know, to be honest, I think what a lot of people should, like a lot of companies should be doing. Uh, my mom, I remember when we were young, her company would actually, they would give them uh, like gift certificates to like honey baked hams or the like going to get turkey or going to get like a Thanksgiving or Christmas meal. And you oh. could literally, you know, it would have everything you would need, the the sides, the, the main dish. And I think that could really help so many people so they don't have to spend their money on trying to get like Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner on the table. They can actually worry about maybe getting their kids Christmas gifts. You know, it is very worrisome considering we don't have that pandemic relief right now. Yeah. We don't have those checks coming in. And this is ending at the end of the year. And, you know, a lot of people are, are also unemployed and unemployment checks. Right. Oh. So like, there's a, a bunch of stuff coming at us very soon. And how will this impact everyone celebrating the holidays? What will they have to choose? Right. Their rent their food, presents for their children. We're forcing people to make very difficult decisions, which can possibly create a lot of chaos. Yeah, especially when you know that in this country, that companies and big businesses are always going to be taken care of versus the actual individual. So I think companies should really be thinking about, well, how can we impact someone's lives? Because guess what? We know that we'll be taken care of at the end of the day. Yeah. So yeah, maybe uh, send this link to your boss to, to a, a little hint as yeah. to what you slack actually magic. want. Right. <laughs> okay. Now coming up on the show, we got what's trending this hour. Why one doctor is not as enthusiastic about the COVID-19 Moderna vaccine. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how light therapy can help you if you have seasonal depression. 
which is so interesting because it sounds like all we're doing is looking at light bulbs. Like I could just look at my ring light and that's light therapy to me. But I guess we'll no. find out. That just reminds you how little Instagram followers you have. <laughs> what? I just think of uh, those ring lights and I think about Instagram influencers or something. <laughs> anyway. Okay. All right, moving on to what's trending this hour. Moderna CEO Stefan Bensel warns the COVID vaccine is not a silver bullet and public health measures like wearing masks are still needed. It's not a silver bullet. What we need is we need surveillance to be stronger. Uh, we need uh, public health measures because you have no other way at the beginning. This is your best weapon and you need to use it well. And I think when you look around the world, you have some countries that have done an excellent job, including, of course, China controlling the virus. And you have some countries where it's totally out of control. And when you still go today, you know, in some places and you see people, you know, going to crowded places with no mask or eating inside restaurants with no mask, I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. It's like, you're going to get infected. The only question is when. You know, I appreciate this because I, I do think that people think, oh, vaccine here is here. It's all going to be like back to normal right away. And I, I do think we need to recognize that this is going to be a slow process, right? Yeah, it is. And to be honest, it's I feel like it's nowhere near to be done. And I think once we all kind of align with that thinking and align with, hey, we all need to be on the same page, then we can move through this quicker. That is true. Uh, and speaking of not moving quickly, CDC is warning that Americans should avoid travel during Thanksgiving. Okay, Dr. Henry Walk, the CDC's COVID-19 incident manager, said this on a call to reporters. It's not a requirement. It's a recommendation for the American public to consider right now, especially as we're seeing the sort of exponential growth in cases and the opportunity to translocate disease or infection from one part of the country to another. Another, it leads to our recommendation to avoid travel at this time. Now, the agency also advises that anyone who has not lived in the household during the two weeks ahead of the holiday stay in a separate area of the house with a designated bathroom if possible and wear masks while indoors. That includes college students or members of the military returning home for the holidays. Okay. Other yeah, other CDC guidance for Thanksgiving includes, and listen up, having guests bring their own food, drinks, plates, and utensils, offering disposable food containers, as well as single-use salad dressings and condiment packets, avoiding congregating the kitchen as much as possible, hosting gatherings outside with uh, as few people as possible, and clearly explaining mitigation efforts with guests ahead of time. See, I guess for, like, all of the holidays that I experience with family, um, we already have mm -hmm. paper plates and, like, you know, the to-go <laughs> material because I'm taking food home. So, really, you know, it's already kind of, I'm used to that. But the idea of having, you know, separate condiments and all these things, that's a little intense. But we got to do what we got to do. He said bring your own food. <laughs> I'm bringing my own food. Somebody better cook for me. Right. Yeah, it's like, or I'll cook for you and I'll send it to you and then bring it back here. Then I might as well stay at home right. and just Postmates some. Exactly. Now, the Los Angeles County Public Health officials said if the county's daily COVID-19 cases continue to remain at record level highs, such as reported today, the county could find itself under a strict stay-at-home order as early as Sunday. Here's what they had to say. Mark and Colleen, this could be just the beginning of new restrictions to come if these COVID case levels in L.A. County don't drop down and fast. Tonight, the L.A. County Sheriff telling us that he wasn't made aware of the new curfew that's to come this Friday, but will follow the department health department's lead.
A curfew for L.A. County once again, but this time for businesses. Starting Friday, restaurants and non-essential businesses must close by 10 p.m. And that was County Health Officer Dr. Muntu Davis. And actually right after that, you know, they said Sunday, but then Governor Gavin Newsom tweeted earlier today, due to the rise in COVID-19 cases, California is issuing a limited stay-at-home order. Non-essential work and gatherings must stop from 10 p.m to 5 a.m. in counties in the purple tier. This will take effect at 10 p.m. on Saturday and remain for a month. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's yeah. happening. It's just a pause, okay, guys? Just breathe. Okay, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so obviously I skip over Thanksgiving and I go straight to Christmas and the speculation is over. Ariana Grande, Jennifer Hudson, and Mariah Carey are all teaming up and they'll be joining her, Mariah Carey, in her upcoming holiday special because I guess she sent fans into a tizzy last month when she teased the collaborations with the artists with the initials AG and JH. Um, well, Mariah Carey finally confirmed that, guess what? Ariana Grande and Jennifer Hudson will appear in Mariah Carey's magical Christmas special that's happening mm-hmm. on April TV. It's going to be available to stream on December 4th. And I mean, the stars are here. The magical Christmas special will also see guest appearances from Tiffany Haddish, Billy Eichner, Snoop Dogg, Jermaine Dupree, and so many more. Plus her nine-year-old twins are going to be involved too. So, you know, Mariah Carey is like the queen of Christmas. So girl, this is going to be it. I'm very excited for that fun i love it she continues to make money off that one song yes and she continued to like (laughs) because i will continue to buy it i will continue to stream it and that is your tea report when can we start playing it (laughs) you know what that means okay coming up why light therapy might be able to help you that's next Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Could light therapy help you with seasonal depression? Well, joining us to dive in and talk more about this and how it works is Dr. Jennifer Beach, who's the research officer at the National Research Council of Canada, a fellow Canadian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what does light therapy consist of? How would you explain it to people? Well, the first thing to understand is light therapy is for people who have the real medical disorder of seasonal affective disorder. So it's best if people think they have a problem to talk to their doctor or to a medical professional to be diagnosed first. Mm. So that's important. Yeah. How do you know if you have a problem though? Well, you'd know because you'd be very unhappy, right? You'd have all the classical symptoms of depression, uh, difficulty kind of interesting yourself in, in common activities, feel pretty low. But if it's seasonal, then you would be experiencing those symptoms more at certain times of year. For most people, that's going into the winter months. Although there's a small number of people who actually have this problem at the start of summer, not Mm -hmm. the start of winter, right? So it would be a, a problem that gets worse into the winter for most of us, and then better sort of improving into the spring and summer. And that would happen more than one year in a row. But also, in addition to the normal experience of of sort of unhappiness, people who have seasonal affective disorder have some unusual symptoms that are not the same as regular depression. Uh, They tend to be very sleepy, so they'll sleep longer every day. They'll be a lot hungrier. And what they'll tend to eat more of is carbohydrates, uh, which not surprisingly can also lead people to have weight gain as part of seasonal affective disorder. So if you have those symptoms and they're bad enough that they're affecting your everyday life, then you should talk to a doctor 
and one of the solutions for the problem could be light therapy. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm just so interested at how light therapy works because is it just like staring at light bulbs? Like how does that, I don't, I'm not really understanding the concept of it. Right, so it is somewhat like staring at light bulbs, although not necessarily the ones in your, in your ceiling. There are um, light boxes, different designs. This is a treatment that's been around for, oh gosh, 20 or 30 years now. So the older boxes tended to be kind of big and bulky and they use fluorescent lamps. Newer ones will use LEDs and they're smaller and lighter and sometimes portable. You can find these in a lot of drugstores. So you don't actually need a prescription to buy one, but you'd be wise to get medical advice before using it. But it's just a little box that sits on a table. Um, It should come with instructions that will tell you at what distance you should sit from it because the intensity of the light really matters. And if you're too close to it, then that could be undesirable. You might get more intensity than you're intending. But also, if you're too far away, you're not going to get the dose that you need. Fascinating. So, Again, you're hearing the voice of Dr. Jennifer Veach, research officer from the National Research Council of Canada, as we talk about light therapy in these winter months. So you're saying it's this box, it's a light bulb you know, where, and you just get it at a pharmacy? Is it expensive? You, you can't, they're not expensive. I haven't gone out to price one recently, but yeah. they're, uh, they're. I'm not going to estimate a number, yeah. but they're <laughs> yeah. not terribly expensive. Yeah. Uh, it depends where you are and, you know, what you buy. The way it's used is you, you sit in, at a table or, you know, a desk or your kitchen counter, whatever. For ones that deliver quite an intense exposure, it's measured in a unit called Lux. If you're getting about 10,000 Lux at the distance the manufacturer tells you you should be, it's most of them that I've seen, it's probably about two feet or so. Then you would use that for about half an hour a day. For most people, that would be in the morning. So some people would say a good way to do this is to get into the habit of, you know, get yourself up at the the same time of day, you know, whatever it is, seven o'clock, seven thirty, whatever makes sense for you, and then do this, you know, while you're sitting reading the newspaper, you know, checking your social media, eating your breakfast, but just for thirty minutes, and then you and then you're done for the day. So uh-huh. when, I guess, is it, because I'm imagining like, oh, if I pop, like if I have a headache and I put take some aspirin or some ibuprofen, it kind of automatically works. When will people start kind of feeling the effects of this, of the treatment? So this takes a few days and the estimate varies, you know, depending on the person. Uh, what I've read as being common is somewhere between, you know, four days to a week mm. and you should start to feel better. But one of the really interesting things about it and what is kind of similar about your, your ibuprofen example example is uh, if you stop doing it you stop getting the benefit oh. right so you have to it's oh. not like I'm going to do this for three weeks and then that's it I don't have to do it anymore I'm going to have to keep doing it at least through the season when I have problems and the other thing that people should be aware of is this works for estimates vary but about two-thirds of the people who experience seasonal affective disorder will get a benefit out of light therapy. And it's not obvious to researchers yet, you know, which two-thirds of the people are going to get that benefit. So that's one of the reasons why it's important to have medical advice, because there are, of course, lots of antidepressant medications out there. And if light therapy doesn't work for you, then maybe there's a different antidepressant that does. Okay, but this could actually replace pharmaceutical drugs as well, possibly? It could, yeah. In fact, that's one of the good things about it is it has really minimal side effects as compared to, you know, all the pharmaceuticals, which come along with with various other side effects. So if you can get benefit out of light therapy, I think that the risk is much lower than compared to to taking a a medication. For some folks, the one one of the risks that does exist, and this is why people need to be a little careful, is if you're at risk for any kind of bipolar disorder, then adding light therapy 
could actually tip you over into a state of mania. Oh. Now that's a pretty wow. small okay. risk, but yeah. if you're one of those, you know, small percentage of the population for whom that's a possibility, you definitely want to be monitored while you do this so that you can adjust um, and, and, you know, prevent that problem. Well, now, thank you for all of this information. So good. So we appreciate it. Uh, that was Dr. Jennifer Veach, research officer from the National Research Council of Canada. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It is time for our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Now, Latosha Stone is the owner of Proper NAR, the first ever skateboard company owned by a black woman. How awesome is that? Yeah, I'm obsessed with stories like this because I feel like I'm being seen at the age of 13. Right? I mean, that's exactly what happened with her. I mean, she grew up in Ohio. She says her skateboarding dates back to middle school when the sport norm in her predominantly white hometown of Greenville. And here she is sharing more. I think that little black girls should be able to pursue whatever interests that they're into. If they want to skateboard or start skateboarding, they should go ahead and do it. I've been in love with skateboarding since like middle school. Proper Night came into existence about seven years ago. I was working at this factory and it was horrible. It was hot. I was like making windows. It was like minimum wage. And I was just like, I can't do this forever. <laughs> I just took my tax return one year and you know, just went ahead and, and did it. I love skateboarding and you know, it's just something that I've been into ever since I was a little kid. Now, such cool stuff. If you want to find out more about that and check out, you know, all the stuff they offer from t-shirts, obviously skateboards and skatewear, go to propernar.com. That's G-N-A-R. Oh. And last but not least, for our Yes Queen of the Day, a shout out to this FedEx driver who surprised a young boy with a new basketball hoop. Early uh, Christmas gift. Okay, I, who knew FedEx was Santa Claus now? Right? I mean, we're obviously doing something wrong because we're not getting any free gifts from FedEx. Only <laughs> because we've we been, pay for. We've been naughty, Shira. We've most definitely been naughty. Obviously. So Kalito Wheeler came home from work last week to find a brand new Spalding basketball hoop had been set up in the yard for her young son, Elijah. She didn't actually notice it at first, and then she wrote about it on uh, Facebook and that post has gone viral, but she instantly started crying when she realized that this was a random act of kindness that happened at her home. And there was a letter that was signed from someone named Aubrey and said, just wanted you and your son to have the best hoop that will grow with him and all his friends. It's wonderful that you guys shoot hoops with him. So that's really sweet. Like this person did not need to do this, but Hey, shout out to FedEx uh, and for having good employees, I guess. I mean, that's it. That's all it takes. Hopefully we get lucky one time and we get to run across one. Right. I actually saw a viral video today, a FedEx driver pulling a UPS driver out of the snow. And it was like, really showed the power of like being a team, even though you're competitors. <laughs> I, I like love that. that. Yeah. Anyway, that was our Yaz Queen of the day. Yes, Queen. And you can always follow us on social media, slide into our DMs if you want to give us any ideas for a Yaz Queen of the day or other parts of our show. At LGT Show is where you can find us. Now, coming up on tomorrow's show, it is Trans Day of Remembrance. We're bringing you the organizations you should be paying attention to to support the community. Plus, the assistant to the mayor of L.A. joins us to talk about how they expect to implement a curfew in L.A., including over Thanksgiving. Mm. So that is tomorrow. 
Same time, always live right here weekdays on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. We also post everything as a podcast. So join our podcast family. All you have to do is go to the radio.com app, search Let's Go There, and subscribe. And also, of course, we're on other platforms where podcasts are available. Now, before we say goodbye, a shout out to Loveline with Dr. Chris. Stick around for that. It's after our ship. But for now, we are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. Bye, y'all. Let's go there with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. On the next show, in honor of Trans Day of Remembrance, we're bringing you the organizations you should be paying close attention to to support the community. Plus, the assistant to the mayor of L.A. joins us to talk about how they expect to implement a curfew over Thanksgiving. Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.